This recording is brought to you by Whitworth University. Welcome. I'm uh, Carol Simon. I'm the provost here at Whitworth University. And welcome to tonight's uh, Lindemann Lecture. Uh, the Edward B. Lindemann Chair and Lectureship was named for Whitworth's 14th president uh, to honor his work as a futurist, business leader, and educator. Uh, the individual who holds this endowed chair is to enhance the academic program for Whitworth students and faculty through contributions to general education and to faculty development. The individual is also charged with enriching public conversations around significant issues as a Christian scholar. Edward B. Lindemann served as Whitworth's uh, president from 1970 to 1980. He came to Whitworth after working as director of programming for the Apollo Space Program for the Rockwell Corporation. His last adventure as Whitworth's president emeritus was journeying to China as part of an international tour uh, where he died after a brief uh, illness. Endowed chairs and professorships allow Whitworth University to honor the accomplishments of particular faculty members and to provide resources towards their future scholarship and continuing intellectual growth. These named positions also honor the values of the donors and those whose legacy is highlighted in each position's title. The holder of an endowed position has a continual reminder of the generosity of those who are partnering in his or her ongoing work as a scholar teacher. And um, Tony Clark, as a historian, did uh, exactly the characteristic thing. And as soon as he found out he was going to be the next Lindemann chair, he went to the archives and did research on Edward Lindemann. Um, China links Edward Lindemann and Dr. Tony Clark, uh, who has used his term as holder of the Lindemann chair to both enrich Whitworth's intellectual engagement and contribute to broader scholarly conversations. Um, he has contributed to the greater scholarly community through such activities as directing the China Christianity Studies Group, an affiliate scholar, scholarly society to the Association of Asian Studies. And uh, Tony has also delivered um, at least nine invited lectures uh, over the last three and a half years to various scholarly communities across the nation and internationally. He has also given three earlier Lindemann lectures on Whitworth's campus. Uh, in addition, Dr. Clark uh, accomplished an ambitious publishing agenda during this period, completing publications in journals, book chapters, book reviews, and articles. Dr. Clark earned his PhD in Chinese history and culture from the University of Oregon in 2005. He studied languages and cultural history at leading universities in China and France. Uh, Clark joined Whitworth's faculty in 2009 after serving as a professor of Chinese history at the University of Alabama. 
He has received several scholarly awards to conduct his research in, on Christianity in China, including year-long grants from the National Endowment for the Humanities, the American Council of Learned Societies, and the Fulbright Foundation. He's also been a researcher at archives in Oxford, England, Brussels, Belgium, and at the Vatican Secret Archives in Rome. In addition to his articles, reviews, papers, and chapters, Dr. Clark has published several scholarly books, including his most recent book, Catholicism and Buddhism, which contrasts the lives and teachings of Jesus and the Buddha, and, Christian, and China's Christian, Christianity from the Missionary to the Indigenous Church, an edited volume which grew out of an international conference uh, on Christianity in China that Tony hosted and organized here on Whitworth's campus. His forthcoming book, China Gothic, explores the architecture of conversion and examines the built environment of Christian worship in China as an embodiment of the tug of war between those who thought that the Chinese needed to become European in order to become Christian and those who sought a more indigenous incarnation of Christianity there. Tony's books and articles form an impressive corpus, but his main motivation is not to impress, but to share his knowledge with others and to contribute to intercultural understanding. When I think of Tony's passion for scholarly research, I think of the parable of the pearl of great price in the Gospel of Matthew. Imagine the excitement of the merchant as he puts the pearl that he has spent so much in acquiring on display, and we, you will have imagined something similar to Tony's excitement in sharing what he's discovered through his research. When I think of Tony's life as a scholar, I also think of the words of William Wordsworth, what we have loved, others will love, and we will teach them how. During his time as Lindemann Chair, Tony has invited students into his archival research, has invited colleagues at Whitworth into conversations about how to make progress in their own scholarship, and has extended scholarly hospitality, hosting conversations among scholars here and abroad. I expect that tonight Tony will teach us how to love what he has loved and show us how to be better lovers of wisdom and knowledge. Please join me in thanking Dr. Clark as, um, for his service as Lindemann Chair and welcoming him as he delivers his lecture, Bonfire of the Humanities, The Moorings of an Academy Adrift. Cicero defined a good talk as one that accomplishes three things. It must be truthful, it must be pleasing, and it must call us to action. I expect that for most of us, discussing the current deterioration of the humanities in the, in the academy cannot be construed as pleasing. But this is perhaps not the time to prioritize entertainment as how we define pleasing. We now confront overwhelming changes in the day-to-day -day culture and operation of colleges and universities. And it is time to re-evaluate where we are going. In this, my concluding talk as the Edward B. Lindemann Chair, 
I shall act as a historian who is speaking directly to the future, something that would have intrigued Edward Lindemann, though I won't be saying much that Lindemann would have agreed with. He was a futurist who believed that science will perfect the future of humanity. I am a rationalist who believes that science, as it is now venerated as a source of higher salaries and a better utopian future, is part of a paradigm that is slowly destroying humanity. My talk tonight may seem a bit bleak, but I am interested in saying something that is more meaningful than motivational. So I'll offer some remarks about why the humanities matter now more than ever as we stand beside what I see as the bonfire of the humanities, as our world somewhat apathetically watches books being replaced by screens that are occupied more with social media and video games than with the wisdom of our human past. History has observed crowds of convinced ideologues waving fists through the smoke of burning books. I've lived through two eras of college culture, one during which the word job was seldom spoken and another during which the word learning is uttered even less. Just as books were destroyed for their, quote, dangerous ideas in the past, the humanities are being destroyed today for their apparent uselessness in gaining wealth and power. Most of what we now call universities and colleges no longer appear to offer students a genuine and rigorous version of the liberal arts as they were created and expected to function. Indeed, most of the, the academy no longer understands what is meant by a liberal arts education. By the time I finish speaking tonight, everyone here might legitimately accuse me of being unreasonable but there may be something to say in favor of unreasonableness. The Irish playwright George Bernard Shaw wrote, quote, the reasonable man adapts himself to the world. The unreasonable one persists in trying to adapt the world to himself. Therefore, all progress depends on the unreasonable man. Anyone such as myself who proposes a large-scale return of the entire system of higher education to the traditional liberal arts might accurately be, be accused of being, quote, ill-adapted to the world. If I am ill-adapted, then I am, by Shaw's definition, unreasonable. But then I wonder if I am thus progressive. And we all know that in our present intellectual climate, being progressive is in vogue. So I shall attempt to address two areas tonight. First, I'll briefly disclose why I am, like so many of my contemporaries who teach at a university, deeply concerned over the bonfire of the humanities. And second, I'll suggest what I hope our university professors and administrators begin doing to restore a genuine liberal arts education to the curriculums and classrooms of today's academy. The classical understanding of a muse was the nine goddesses of Greek and Roman mythology, all daughters of Zeus, who presided over the arts and sciences. Today, we refer to a muse as a person or personified force who inspires the work of an intellectual or artist. Tonight, my muse shall mostly be the ideas of the great English professor and cleric, John Henry Newman 
who in my estimation described best the correct character and goals of a university. Already by the early 1990s, discussion of, quote, the university in crisis had become mainstream, especially among professors. We are notoriously known as gripe gripers and naysayers. We are known to be, quote, lost in the clouds of our respective disciplines and are not infrequently complained about among university administrators because all we seem to do is complain about them. We mostly deserve these criticisms. The Yale historian Yaroslav Pelikan wrote in 1992 that, quote, university bashing seems to have become a favorite indoor sport, the modern academic equivalent of the anti-clericalism of the 18th century. Near my own desk are several books that illustrate the recent cottage industry of lamenting the, quote, crisis of higher education, and especially the humanities, bearing such titles as Tenured Radicals, How Politics Has Corrupted Our Higher Education, Prof Scam, Professors and the Demise of Higher Education, The Moral Collapse of the University, In Defense of Humanism, Value in the Arts and Letters, and higher education in America, killing the spirit. Christian universities, too, have become fodder for this industry of educational crisis, seen in such books as The Soul of the American University, From Protestant Establishment to Established Nonbelief, Should God Get Tenure, Essays on Religion in Higher Education, and The Coup at Catholic University, The 1968 Revolution in American Catholic Education. And the so-called watchdog of higher education in the U.S., the chronicle of higher education, has continued to feed its readers a diet of crisis and drama about the state of colleges and universities for more than a decade. One recent article was entitled, The Humanities as We Know Them Are Doomed, Now What? Ironically, one of the results of having received a genuine liberal arts education, according to John Henry Newman, is the ability to see things historically and thus avoid the trap of getting, quote, overly worked up and crisis-mongering. That said, by spending only a few minutes paging through one of the books I just mentioned reveals how alarmed people are about the collapse of the humanities and their replacement with shoddy research and meaningless student assignments. Paige Smith's very widely read book, Higher Education, Killing the Spirit, argues that, quote, the vast majority of the so-called research turned out in the modern university is essentially worthless because professors and students who once read classics and studied art and history are now saddled with busy work on a vast, almost incomprehensible scale. Smith continues to assert, quote, it is dispiriting, it depresses the whole scholarly enterprise and most important of all, it deprives the student of what he or she deserves, the thoughtful and considerate attention of a teacher deeply and unequivocally committed to teaching. In short, it robs the student of an education. I'll now say what I suspect shall be my first truly unpopular statement tonight. Among the most criticized aspects of the modern academy expressed in these books is the disordered view that students should be the first priority of a university. This is like saying that by wearing a warm coat, one can force the weather to cool. 
Students may be why classrooms exist, but the quality of students can only be as great as the teachers who stand in those classrooms. I spent part of my summer researching, reading, and resting at Oxford, and there is much to be said about how Oxford has succeeded at being one of our greatest universities. For several historic reasons, Oxford became the destination for many of the world's greatest thinkers who published their ideas and the fruits of their research. As Father John Jenkins, the president of the University of Notre Dame, recently said of Oxford, the university housed the best scholars, which in turn, quote, attracted the most talented and ambitious students. As John Henry Newman rightly suggests, students should not be prioritized at a great university, but the first place at any good institution must be reserved for the professors whose work generates a kind of intellectually and spiritually creative air that the students may breathe. In a correctly ordered university, students breathe better air precisely because their professors have been provided the context within which to produce such an atmosphere that young minds are given access to thinkers who have already been greatly formed. I do not say this because I am a professor who simply wants to be prioritized, but because Newman is correct. What attracted students to Oxford was not its expensive new recreation facilities or its competitive tuition, but rather the renowned reputation of its scholars. Good professors produce good students. My point then, before I get to the main themes of my talk, is to frame my remarks with an awareness that we do live in a time that carries great anxieties about the challenges universities now confront and what still exists of the liberal arts. I've read many critiques of the humanities, many written by humanities professors, and I recognize that criticism often leads to constructive change. There are some, however, who would like to see colleges and universities disappear altogether insisting that higher education is, quote, overpriced and irrelevant, and that universities merely serve to guard the privileges of the privileged. I will argue otherwise. I will argue that such views are motivated more by the current failures of universities to offer a genuine humanities education than what a true humanities education provides. Poignantly, it is often scientists who better understand the value of the humanities than so-called humanists. Among scientists, there is a popular saying that, quote, science can tell you how to clone a Tyrannosaurus rex. Humanities can tell you why this might be a bad idea. <laughs> so I'll now turn to what the humanities are as they were created under the nomenclature of the liberal arts and what a liberally educated student should appear like after she or he has graduated from a liberal arts college or university. I shall attempt, hopefully not too late, to pour a little water over the bonfire that continues to consume the authentic humanities. Though if I were sitting here in the audience hearing this very talk, I would likely be thinking, what is Professor Clark really talking about here? what is being said between the lines? And does he view himself as the only enlightened member of the faculty here at Whitworth? 
Let me say at the outset that I am now talking about the entire academy, not just this institution, and that many of my remarks are collated from discussions I've had with my colleagues here on this campus. But even so, I graciously accept the criticisms of those here who might disagree. This talk is an example of what universities were created for, the spirited engagement of minds that work together for a better understanding of what is true and right. So what then are the liberal arts? It is a universal sense that society is improved by the education of its members. John Henry Newman admitted that a genuinely ordered education serves not only persons of a particular creed, but all of humanity. Thus, the foundations of a liberal arts education need not only include religious persons or religious texts. In the West, the so-called liberal arts education emerged as the most effective method of teaching minds how to think rationally and critically and how to master the subjects that engender a genteel and pleasant manner that will make the graduating student a better citizen in society. Countless colleges and universities identify themselves as, quote, liberal arts institutions, claiming that their general education courses impart this form of learning. This term is not merely a loose idea, however, that can be applied to any course of study. The liberal arts are a craft, not merely a general sense or ethos, which should be learned before or in addition to non-liberal arts disciplines. The very concept of the liberal arts derives from the medieval Christian notion of arts liberalis, which include seven areas of study. Liber means free, or even to make free. The seven arts liberalis exist in vital contrast to the arts mechanicae, or courses of study pursued for practical and economic reasons. These non-liberal arts courses of study are the vocational arts, which have unfortunately become the mainstay of most institutions. Thus, the more a university dedicates itself to these vocational and practical arts, the further it moves away from the liberal arts. Let me be more clear. University courses or programs that are invented and structured to help students get a job are not part of the liberal arts. They are part of an entirely different category. They are part of the mechanical or vocational arts that should be taught apart from or after one has mastered the liberal arts. To be accurate, the liberal arts include such subjects as grammar, rhetoric, and logic. And after learning these, one begins the study of geometry, arithmetic, music, and astronomy. During the medieval era, when the university and the liberal arts were invented, it was after learning these liberal arts that one seriously undertook what was known as the, quote, mother of all learning, theology. So I should pause here and acknowledge my deep sympathies for students here who are paying steep costs for their education. I imagine an institution that provides both a genuine liberal arts education after which the necessary skills for gainful employment are mastered. 
the title of my talk tonight is centered on what I view as the bonfire of the humanities. So I will now turn at last to Newman's ideas of what a liberal arts university education is comprised of. And uh, which of course centers on what we now understand to be the humanities. Everything I say from this point will revolve around a central assertion. Quote, knowledge is capable of being its own end. Again, whenever a university or college curriculum is structured primarily to prepare people for a particular skill or particular employment, it is no longer a liberal arts institution. One of the most common complaints lobbied against a college education today is that what it teaches is, quote, worthless if it doesn't get you a job. Until recently, the worth of a college education was not valued as a preparation for employment. Newman wrote that when one receives an authentic liberal arts education, quote, a habit of mind is formed, which lasts through life, of which the attributes are freedom, equitableness, calmness, moderation, and wisdom, or what in I have ventured to call a philosophical habit. Newman suggests that, quote, to advance in the useful arts is one thing, to cultivate the mind is another. Cicero, like John Henry Newman, understood that the common end of the liberal arts is the attainment of truth. Indeed, the attainment of truth is embedded in the DNA of the humanities and the liberal arts. And to jettison truth from the academic enterprise is to abandon the humanities and the liberal arts altogether. Let us remember the mottos of our world's most respected universities, which include the Latin word veritas, or truth. Yale's motto is looks at veritas, or light and truth. Harvard's motto is simply veritas, or truth. And Oxford's, Oxford's motto might seem outrageous in this secularized era, which is dominus illuminatio mea, or it is God who enlightens me. Objective truth, as Newman described it, is that which, quote, if there were no individual person in the world to know them or talk about them would exist still. To pursue knowledge for its own sake in order to attain truth then is the craft of the humanities and liberal arts. Cicero, like Newman, would never criticize the pragmatic arts, nor would they scoff at what we uh, call the, quote, STEM disciplines. But the liberal arts are foremost inclined towards seeking knowledge with no other aim than to better know ourselves and others as human beings. Quote, after the calls and duties of our animal existence, Cicero states, an education dedicates itself to the search after truth. Supporting Cicero's definition of a liberal education, Newman attunes his attention to the term liberal, which is, quote, opposed to servile and by servile work as understood bodily labor, mechanical employment, and the like, in which the mind has little or no part. One can be assured that she or he is receiving a liberal arts education when her or his time is spent in leisurely study, and reading, quote, liberal education and liberal pursuits 
Newman recalls, are exercises of the mind, of reason, of reflection. The insistence that an education must be merely pragmatic and, quote, lead one to fruitful employment has had a commanding influence over the Western psychology for a long time, since at least the 17th century, in fact. The so-called, quote, purpose of a college education has been discussed by two opposing thinkers. John Locke represents the view that an education's aim must be utility, and Newman represents the view that an education's aim is to attain knowledge and not to acquire a mechanical skill. Locke opposed the liberal arts, preferring that an education be centered squarely within the domain of what he termed, quote, useful skills. In his essay on education, Locke wrote this of the humanities, quote, reason, if consulted with, would advise that their children's time should be spent acquiring what might be useful to them when they come to be adults, rather than that their heads should be stuffed with a deal of trash, close quote. And of the so-called, quote, useless training in poetry, Locke refers to this as, quote, a pleasant air, but a barren soil. The litany of denunciations against reading the classics, studying poetry, and wading through the life-changing ideas expressed in philosophy, history, and theology have continued unabated since Locke's critique. And finally, we see now an era that has become, as Newman describes, largely, quote, condemnatory of any teaching which tends to the general cultivation of the mind. Locke's opinion that a liberal education is, quote, trash, carries some currency among many people even today. Before I briefly outline what a liberal arts humanities education looks like in practice, I should note how Newman describes a liberally educated person. This provides us with a portrait of what someone should look like when she or he receives her or his college degree. John Henry Newman describes the liberally trained intellect as one that, quote, cannot be partial, cannot be exclusive, cannot be impetuous, cannot be at a loss, cannot but be patient, collected, and majestically calm because it discerns the end in every beginning, the origin in every end, the law in every interruption, the limit in each delay, because it ever knows where it stands and knows how its path lies from one point to another. In other words, a liberal arts education is not built upon a curriculum intended to prepare one for employment but rather consists in an education that develops a person's understanding of humanity and behavior as a human. It is an education that prepares one for life rather than the details of making a living. St. Augustine summarized this ideal when he said that, quote, it is the duty of a good education to arrive at wisdom rather than to arrive at a high salary and a large home. Newman's work, The Idea of a University, is a substantial tome, and it took me several months to read and digest it. I'll now attempt to reduce what must be read in its entirety 
to a few short lines. A liberal arts education includes many elements, including, as I've already said, grammar, rhetoric, and logic. And within these categories, one would be exposed to the important study of language. But I'll discuss only two areas of study that occupy most of Newman's writing on what a university teaches, literature and theology. Theology is so useful, it is so essential to one's learning that it permeates the entire process. I'll begin, though, with Newman's description of literature as a central component of the liberal arts. As much as I prefer the field of study, of history, before all others, I am forced by reason to prioritize literature and theology above history. <laughs> One of Aristotle's most famous lines relates to his view of literature or poetry as compared to history. He wrote that, quote, poetry tends to speak of universals, history of particulars. While my own discipline provides the details of what has happened in our human past, only literature can express, express is the best word to use here, what it is like to be a human being in that past. Newman puts it another way. He writes that, quote, literature is to a person in some sort what autobiography is to the individual. It is his life and remains. And in another passage, he comments on the works of diverse cultures, suggesting that, quote, on the whole, all literatures are one. They are the voices of the natural human. That is, a collective humanity that shares the same temptations, successes, and failures, no matter which nation, tribe, or, or worldview she or he belongs to. As I've already proposed, only through the liberal arts, with their emphasis on literature, can we so deeply explore what it truly means to be a human being. So making a case for theology as a necessary component of a liberal education is perhaps more difficult in today's academic culture. Newman, by the way, did not submit that theology be taught only at Christian institutions. He contends that theology must be taught at all institutions that claim the name university. Of the numerous objections petitioned against theology, perhaps the most common is that, quote, it has nothing to do with knowledge, since, according to post-enlightenment sensibilities, what is presently understood to be, quote, knowledge can only be derived from the evidence of our senses. To this argument, Newman responds that in a genuine liberal arts education, knowledge cannot be limited only to the natural order which is observed through the senses alone, but is completed by the supernatural order, which is apprehended through the mind. To view knowledge only by means of the senses is to abandon the humanities as a source for gaining it, because the heart of what humanists do is study areas beyond the capabilities of pure senses. And furthermore, Newman challenges those who deny the place of theology at a university with the simple question, quote, how can we investigate any part of any order of knowledge and stop short of that which enters into every order? In this brief question, 
Newman challenges two assumptions of those who, do not, who deny the place of religion at a university. First, since religion seeks or claims to understand all aspects of knowledge, then why would one wish to see such an important line of inquiry stifled? And more to the point, Newman exposes the vulgar hypocrisy of an institution calling itself a, quote, university that does not teach theology. To be called a university by its very name, universitas, is to claim to teach universally. That is to teach and research all branches of knowledge, including theology. Few things nourish a liberal education more than the study of theology. I should add one last remark to my description of the kinds of areas a humanist explores. One must study widely before she or he can be considered widely educated. And to be overly laden with an education of mere details is to fail at attaining a liberal education. Newman insists with force that, quote, you must be above your knowledge, not under it, or it will oppress you. And the more you have of it, the greater will be the load. A liberal arts education teaches one how best to process and advantage from all one learns in college. Knowledge is a heavy burden. And as Newman says, quote, unless you are its master, it will be your tyrant. So I now approach my conclusion. And I'm conscious of those who object to my argument that the humanities have always been and should always be the core of any college or university. I've already quoted John Henry Newman's definition of a liberally educated person, wherein he said that such an education makes one calm, collected, and unperturbed when faced with challenges and unexpected or unwanted change. Newman said that one trained in the humanities is thus at ease in a moment of crisis because she or he, quote, ever knows where it stands and knows how its path lies from one point to another. In other words, only one who has studied the human condition, the human soul, and the human past is able to recognize that wherever we are now, we have likely been there before. We humanists, we humanists, it seems, must now justify our existence by making a compelling case for the value of the liberal arts. In an essay recently republished in the Chronicle of Higher Education, the Oxford Classics professor Justin Stover argued provocatively that, quote, there is no case for the humanities in the modern academy. Not because the humanities aren't important, because the way we make cases today by means of statistics, data, and measurable outcomes are incapable of evaluating and supporting what the humanities are and how they function. In fact, if a case for the humanities is demanded, the person demanding the case clearly does not understand what the liberal arts are. I'll return now to Newman's point that the liberally educated person cannot be perturbed. I realize with great clarity that we now exist in an era in antagonism with the humanities. But we who traverse through the precincts of academics know that trends and fads afflict the academy with as much force 
as any other place in society. For nearly two centuries, the entire Western Academy admired the intellectual theories on rhetoric, logic, and pedagogy of the 16th century French Huguenot Petrus Ramos. Until the 17th century, Ramism had largely formed how a liberal arts education was imparted. But like any fad, Ramism eventually faded away to be replaced by other fads, such as Bacianism and Cartesianism. The intellectual preoccupations of today will no doubt evaporate into new ones within a few short decades. It seems that now universities are expected to be, as Justin Stober describes, quote, science labs, innovation incubators, professional schools, engines of meritocracy, agents of social change, and guardians of equality. But as commendable as all these expectations and ambitions are, humanists apprehend that none of these is part of a liberal arts education. As Stover puts it, quote, they are tasks for high schools, research labs, institutes of technology, apprenticeship programs, activism workshops, and the like. Well, there is certainly a place for these concerns in the discussions at a college or university to be named a, quote, liberal arts institution. The humanities must remain at the very heart of what is taught and studied and not the temporary vicissitudes of passing ideologies. And what of our current academic landscape, which has transformed an academy once fueled by the classical humanities into one that is now run by what Stover calls, quote, an economic engine, more concerned with filling student seats than with what intellectual ideas and new publications have issued from its classrooms, libraries, and faculty offices. Fewer complaints are uttered today by professors more than those against the so-called corporatization of the academy. And when the economic solvency of an institution has become the main fixation of university administrators, something is terribly amiss. But history again comforts us. When the English poet, essayist, and lexicographer Samuel Johnson visited Scotland's University of St. Andrews in 1773, he discovered a situation that might sound familiar to us today as many colleges and universities are closing due to insolvency. Side note, no rational person would deny the importance of economic solvency, but would only perhaps its centrality in the context of a university. St. Andrews was founded in 1413, so it is among the world's oldest and most revered institutions. But by the time Johnson had arrived, it had less than 100 students, and what had, quote, consisted of three colleges was now reduced to two. Johnson lamented the sight of seeing this once grand liberal arts university, quote, pining in decay and struggling for life. The reason for its near collapse was that a rising social attitude in Scotland had made economics more important than education. And as Johnson mourned, quote, it is surely not without just reproach that a nation of which the commerce is hourly extending and the wealth increasing, while its merchants 
or its nobles are raising palaces, suffers its universities to molder in dust. Johnson's warning then was that when a nation's priorities center more on profit than knowledge, its universities and the minds of its people will no longer profit intellectually. But Scotland's interest in the humanity returned, and today St. Andrews is known again for the distinction of its liberal arts faculty and has a total enrollment of nearly 8,000 students. All of the most famous universities in history became famous for their reputations in the liberal arts. And I suggest that humanists will be better served by returning to the trenches of sound teaching and publishing. As Stover puts it, quote, scholarship has built institutions before and it will do so again. I began my talk uh, tonight with Cicero. I shall conclude with two remarks related to C.S. Lewis, who in many ways served as the second muse as I contemplated what I might say of the bonfire of the humanities that we are now witnessing in the academy. As you will recall, Cicero defined a successful talk as one that is truthful, pleasant, and calls us to some important action. I've labored to be truthful and to argue in favor of truth throughout everything I've said, and you are the judge of whether this talk is pleasant. Now I shall offer a modest proposal regarding how we can emerge from what I see as the vulgar professionalization of the academy. Without the authentic liberal arts, centered as they are on the traditional humanities, we will remain intellectually adrift. Our moorings are in what Newman has defined as a, quote, liberal education. And to return there, we must do what one must always do when she or he to, decides to return to a better place. We must simply turn again toward those moorings of the authentic liberal arts and set our anchor there once again. I was recently at Maudlin College, Oxford, where I walked through the colonnade of new buildings where C.S. Lewis lived while teaching there. A young man named Donald Whittle, the son of a Methodist minister, has written a delightful anecdote about his first encounter with Lewis at Maudlin after he had arrived to study there. Whittle's father was, as many Christian parents today still are, worried that his professors and fellow students might draw him away from his religious beliefs. But when he heard that the famous Christian convert C.S. Lewis was at Maudlin, Donald's Methodist father was quite relieved. His austere and teetotaler father was no doubt surprised, however, when his son recorded his first meeting with Lewis at his new building's residence. Young Whittle, himself a devout Christian, wrote this of that first encounter with the brilliant author of Mere Christianity and the Chronicles of Narnia. Quote, I was very excited, therefore, to receive an invitation at the end of my first week from Lewis himself. I was asked to go to his rooms after hall to discuss fire-watching arrangements at the college. As I got near the door, I could hear a certain amount of laughter and was amazed to be greeted by CSL, ruddy of complexion, smoking his Will's gold flake cigarettes in a Harris tweed jacket 
downing a pint of beer. In the corner of the room were two barrels for beer and hard cider. My diary for that day records, quote, he offered me three glasses of beer, jolly decent chap. I began to realize that my picture of the world would need to be adjusted. What Whittle encountered when he arrived at Oxford was not what he expected. And as he put it, my picture of the world would need to be adjusted. My first recommendation then is that the liberal arts ethos of expecting and embracing the unexpected is again given its rightful place in the academy and that one's years at college or university are encouraged not to be merely years of preparation for employment, but rather years of being adjusted into a new and more refined human being. Part of the liberal education is exposure to great minds that have matured from long years or long decades of refinement in classrooms, laboratories, and libraries when Donald Whittle met C.S. Lewis, he entered into a relationship that only an authentic liberal arts university can provide. Exposure to industrious, thoughtful, and ambitious scholars who model what it looks like to be an educated person. A great university is far more valued for the intellectual conversations that occur on its campus than the information it imparts. Father Jenkins describes well what a university communi community of scholars and students appears like. Quote, objections give rise to conundrums which through conversations and reflection generate insights and these insights in turn generate a new illuminating perspective on the question that had not been anticipated. Jenkins' main point here is that new insights emerge only within a community wherein people gather together in the same place, not, quote, connected through computers. Places where people confront spontaneous questions asked within spontaneous discussions, questions that, quote, had not been anticipated. I shall state clearly now that merely entering into a relationship is not good enough for a university. A student must, as Jenkins continues, learn her or his most valuable lessons when she or he, quote, observes how a seasoned scholar addresses a problem, wrestles with an objection, formulates a creative solution. For much of learning at a university, is simply being in the proximity of those who do the activity at a very high level, observing astutely and incorporating those observation into one's practice. A liberal arts university was never intended to be a treadmill toward economic comfort. It is where, as Newman suggests, quote, a habit of mind is formed which lasts through life. I'll end here with one last mention of C.S. Lewis and how I connect a line he wrote with something only the humanities can discuss with ease, beauty. Beauty is something 
that like almost everything truly worthwhile in this life cannot be measured and quantified in the way that the academy has begun to evaluate learning. Beauty and learning are both things that are largely spoiled when we attempt to measure them. Measurement almost always distracts one's attention away from the thing being measured. I find Christmas one of the most beautiful times of the year, and it falls in the dead of winter. It is a delightful respite from the melancholies of darkness. C.S. Lewis understood the power of beauty and the power of Christmas. When the kind-hearted fond Tumnus revealed to Lucy in the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe that he no longer wished to turn her, her over to the white witch. He confesses to her that Narnia had fallen under the witch's power and that, quote, it's she that makes it always winter, always winter and never Christmas. Think of that. A life without the beauty of Christmas, at least for me, seems unendurable. The editor of Image, a leading journal on the topics of art and literature, Gregory Wolfe wrote a book in 2011 that he entitled, Beauty Will Save the World. I like this title very much. It is precisely the kind of assertion that a humanities person would make, though I disagree with Wolf's inclusion of one word in his book title, will. He is correct in affirming that beauty is an ointment that cures many wounds. But will beauty save the world? I'm not sure it will, but I'm certain that it can save the world. Humanity is now, I believe, at an important crossroad. We have encountered crossroads before, and here we are again at another one. I would like to suggest that we are now at one of the most decisive moments in our collective history. We must choose between a commitment to the unmeasurable things the unmeasurable things that bring us refinement and solace, such as beauty, or the destructive path of pure pragmatism and economics, which engender apathy and narcissism. Will we choose to support the enduring and humanizing arts of the humanities or allow the authentic liberal arts to be replaced by an eternal and soul-diminishing winter? When I imagine a world without the humanities, I see a world without poetry, without dance, without art, without history, without theology, and without beauty. These are the topics of the humanities, and these are what give to us human beings the Christmas we crave in the leafless, flowerless, and dark months of winter. I'll quote C.S. Lewis one last time to conclude my final talk as the Lindemann Chair. Quote, always winter and never Christmas. Think of that. I think you're up.
that's a tough act to follow. I'm deeply honored to have been invited to respond to this talk. Um, I had the very good fortune to have Dr. Clark assigned as my in my first year as my mentor here at Whitworth. And for both personal and professional reasons, the development of that relationship over the last few years has been so indelibly enriching. Thank you for that. My remarks will be brief. I'll start by saying that I am truly inspired by Dr. Clark's talk. I like it when we can stir the pot. As a fellow member in the Humanities Guild, I share his disappointments with the declining numbers of majors in traditional humanities disciplines, and I worry about the consequences of this trend bearing out in our contemporary culture. As a 19th century Americanist, who is fascinated by the political, specifically democratic, cultures of that century of national adolescence and ascendancy in the global world order, I constantly confront the democratic aspirations of founding documents and living peoples and the equal but often asymmetrical failures of imagination and execution to deliver on those promises. My assessment of our contemporary moment and the state of politics and public discourse in this country first acknowledges that the current antagonisms and polarization are nothing new in US history. In the next breath, I concur that ongoing investments in the traditions of the humanities is surely a potential remedy. Dr. Clark's invocation of the wonders of beauty, the ability to think and to communicate both critically and effectively, to the drive to seek truth. There seems a dearth of such attributes of, of such attributes in our contemporary culture. As significant contributors to culture and politics of our day, colleges and universities are no doubt culpable in our present condi condition. And the decline in the study of traditional humanities might only bear correlation, but also causation. Dr. Clark has provoked us uh, uh, to look critically at priorities, to determine which ones have become misplaced and why, and to call us to action to redirect our endeavors with trust in the values of these various traditions. To his remarks, I would humbly offer two further avenues for potential thought and action. First, with the ever-changing face and needs of humanistic study, we would do ourselves a service to start with a critical assessment of the history of the discipline and its connections to imperialism and slavery. We need a humanities that grapples with historical injustices, their residues in the present day, and the tendencies that humanity types have had to brush these issues under the carpet. Dr. Clark has spoken of the aura of great universities, Oxford in particular. Truly, these places are sites where the humanities has, histor has historically thrived. That said, in the same eras that the humanities made their names on these campuses, the world's greatest educational institutions were largely financed by the exploitation of lands and the labor of the enslaved in far-reaching colonies. The prestigious universities of this country were largely built on the backs and the sales of enslaved labor. And for nearly 100 years after the Civil War, they endeavored to perpetuate social hierarchies 
that produce widespread economic and social inequalities. Students of humanities in these fame-building days largely benefited from an elitism that excluded far more than it ever included. Disciplinary investments in the humanities were largely built on the exclusion of mass numbers of humans themselves. I'm not wholly confident that humanities in its traditional mold is particularly well suited for addressing these historic inequalities and their residues in our present and our futures. But the humanities nevertheless most certainly can and should. Addressing the injustices of the past though is not enough. I also contend that we need a humanities that can more robustly take on the often untalked about uh, neoliberalization of both universities and our socio-political culture. Regarding neoliberalism, I'm drawing upon a wealth of scholarship focused on the tendency since the 1970s to defund public services, to privatize anything and everything, and to frame all human experiences in terms of commodities and consumer choice, education included. We see evidence of neoliberalism in Dr. Clark's emphasis on the current trend toward vocation-oriented education, a move that surely inhibits learning for the sake of learning and the ideal spirit of a robust learning community. That said, we also have to recognize we are sitting in a place with a sticker price around $50,000 a year, and that our institution depends, as we are often reminded, on the development of revenue. Beyond the concerns of this institution, we must acknowledge that even successful graduates will struggle in an economy that has seen an ever-increasing gap in the earning potential of those with inherited wealth and those without it, an issue often decried as the unexpected decline of the middle class in the U.S., or more critically, as the rise of the precariat. Allegedly, market forces are driving our current marketing plans and are catering to whatever the culture at large tells us. But as scholars of human cultures, as humanists, it's incumbent upon us to make more convincing cases against the current trends of neoliberalization that not only compromise learning on our campus, but also create greater economic inequalities in our country and around the world. The humanities can no doubt help us to learn how to think, but we better be thinking about ways to address these systemic issues. Reading classical literature and studying theology should definitely contribute to this kind of change. I humbly submit that we need a new humanities that does something more. Maybe then the bonfire would have something of a phoenix-like quality to it, and we can find a rebirth that changes these trends. As a Christian university that is convicted by the promise of redemption, we in the humanities must hold on to hope, roll up our sleeves, and get to work. Thank you.